The development of doctrine commonly refers to the unfolding of Christian faith into hitherto unformulated and undefined, not yet defined, doctrinal propositions. It's the successive unfolding of the one once and for all given revelation completed by and in Christ and possessed by apostolic faith into newly articulated doctrines. We recognize the phenomenon of development when we see four things. The first thing to see is that there is a one, an integral cognitive whole, revelation as such closed with the death of the last apostle, as is commonly said. The second thing to see is a many into which this one is unfolded or developed or, or articulated, which unfolding occurs, third thing to notice, within a temporal expanse in which the many are formulated and articulated. Fourth, there is required also our ability, a Christian ability of reason illumined by faith to discern and verify that it really is the one integral cognitive whole that is exfoliated into the many subsequent doctrinal propositions. Without the first thing, the one perduring whole of revelation, we have not development but transformation, a self-contradictory purification of Christian discourse where one age says something different from another. Without the second thing, the many articulations of the one, there is no development, but only repetition. Without the third thing, temporal expanse, the question does not arise as to the maintenance of the apostolicity of the church for us, the maintenance of the truth across time. And without the fourth thing, the ability of reason to recognize that the one, the one really is truly and rightly unfolded in the many, then our faith in the apostolicity of the church turns into fideism. It's a condition of the possibility of genuine development of doctrine that it be able to be recognized as such. This recognition, of course, is magisterial, but it also engages the sensus fide of all the faithful. Moreover, this ability, while it requires faith, requires also certain auxilia, two auxilia, in fact, namely metaphysical skill and historical learning. There's also a fifth thing contained in the idea of development of doctrine, a function especially of the third and the fourth things above, temporal expanse, in which the many appear and our ability to affirm them as expressing the one revelation. Together, they imply that it is only the different expressions of some one revealed truth, different expressions and precisions that come later that enable us to apprehend and appreciate the revealed truth more fully. So this means, in turn, the fifth thing, that we judge the adequacy of earlier expressions and the, and the theological success of earlier exponents of faith by the measure 
of the later expressions. Or as Cardinal Newman says, it is indeed sometimes said that the stream is clearest near the spring. Whatever use may fairly be made of this image, it does not apply to the history of a philosophy or belief, which on the contrary is more equable and purer and stronger when its bed has become deep and broad and full. In other words, the future preserves the past in changing it. And for us to know the past, we have to know what it becomes in the future. So much for an initial attempt to fix what we are speaking of when we say development. Now, is there a recognition of this fact and an understanding of its nature and awareness of its causes in St. Thomas? Did he recognize the fact of doctrinal development? The answer to this question is that he did, although some distinguished theologians have denied it. Uh, I think maybe 60 years ago, this would be a very brief presentation. We would have come to this point, and I said, well, he, he didn't, and so you know, we'll move on to the next time. Avery Dulles, for example, held that Thomas's view that Revelation is complete with the death of the last apostle and that as to the essentials of faith, all is present from the time of Christ, effectively precluded a recognition of development. The explications of the article St. Thomas admits will therefore be something minor and negligible. There can be no recognition of a real development, according to Dulles, since these explications are statements of what the church has always already known from the time of the closure of Revelation. Christopher Caxor, on the other hand, finds that all three of the theories or ways of development Dulles treats of, logical, propositional, organic, intuitionist, and third, situational, where development is a matter of translation, he finds that all are, in fact, operative in St. Thomas. Coxor is a more recent expositor of Thomas on development. Dulles, however, reflects a widespread opinion in the 20th century about what St. Thomas was and was not capable of appreciating. In mid-century, Jean Danielou flatly denied that Thomas had any notion of history, la notion d'histoire est étrangère au thomisme. And he, and he said that in a, in a programmatic and very influential essay, the, uh, Les Orientations de uh, Religieuse Contemporaine, or whatever it was, the, the kind of charter of the Nouvelle Théologie, or as it's often taken to be. So just because, for Danielou, the idea of history is strange to Thomism, we must return to thinkers like Gregory of Nyssa and Irenaeus in order to engage a modern world dominated by the philosophies of Hegel and Bergson. Without an idea of history, of course, the idea of development of doctrine cannot get off the ground. In fact, and in fact, easy to verify, the question of whether St. Thomas recognized doctrinal development can be settled very expeditiously. In the premium, of the Contra Errores Grecorum, St. Thomas explains why the dicta of the ancient fathers can seem doubtful to us. This is a well-known text, but I think it's pregnant with a very obvious answer to the question. St. Thomas says, the first thing is that the errors 
that arise about the faith give the holy doctors of the church an occasion to hand on the things that belong to the faith with greater circumspection in order to avoid the errors that arose. Just so, it is evident that the holy doctors who lived before the error of Arius did not speak so expressly about the unity of the divine essence as later doctors. And the same thing happened with other errors. He illustrates this then by comparing the early Augustine on free will with post-Pelagian Augustine on free will. And he concludes, whence, if there are things to be found in the sayings of the ancient doctors that are not said with as much caution as is maintained by moderns, they are not to be despised or rejected, but neither are these things to be used just as such. Rather, they should be reverently explained. Well, we used to laugh at this when we were seminarians uh, a jillion years ago, but we laughed at it because nobody took uh, the uh, exposition of the fathers of the church, you see, as, as really powerful and normative. I don't think we can do that anymore. Well, note first that things touching the unity of the divine essence are not minor or negligible matters, but crucially important to the integrity of the apostolic faith. The growth in accuracy of expression over the course of the Arian controversy was not a matter of ornament and decoration. And St. Thomas, it seems to me, is clearly recognizing that fact. Second, paraphrasing and commenting on this text from the Contra Errores Grecorum, Jean-Pierre Torel says, we can appreciate the orthodoxy of authors before Nicaea or Chalcedon in an adequate way only in the light of the councils, only in the light of the councils that are after them. So in other words, we have here as good a recognition of Newman's remark about the spring and the mouth of the river as we could want. And that is to say, we have here as good a recognition of the fact and importance of development as we could want. Moreover, we should expect this if, following Torrell again, we recognize the importance of St. Thomas's grasp of the historical character of human knowledge, both for the individual and for humanity as a whole. Reason, after all, is discursive. The metaphysical nature of reason requires it to be discursive and therefore historical. And we should recognize that St. Thomas has a very definite view of the God-given shape of this history and its parts. We should expect this also, as Torrell shows again, when we understand Thomas's interest in just the issues that make a historian and historian, questions about the authenticity of texts and the hermeneutical challenges of translation, questions of the historical context in which a text is composed. Given such things, we can by no means be surprised at Thomas's attention to doctrinal development. We should ourselves, of course, be quite unhistorical and anachronistic if we expected his historical achievement in considering the growth of doctrine to look like 19th and 20th century treatments of the same. The closest St. Thomas himself comes to discussing in some detail what we call development of doctrine occurs in the first question of the treatise on faith, on the object of faith at the beginning of the Secunda Secunda, articles seven, eight, and 10 especially. 
but I'm going to skip discussion of these articles, except to note that St. Thomas admits in the reply to the first objection of Article 10 of the first question on faith in the Summa, he, namely, he admits this, temporibus procedentibus, there will be required a more detailed explanation of faith against heretical error. This is not much on display in the Great Summa. It is not a, a, a special focus of attention, in other words. It's there, but it's not especially focused. It is, however, very much on display in the Summa Contra Gentiles, or the Liber De Veritate Catholice Fidei Contra Errores in Fidelium. The display of the contrast of error in Catholic faith is pressed into the overall aim of the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is to manifest the truth of the Catholic faith and eliminate the errors opposed to it. In this fashion, St. Thomas's practice, I, my suggestion is here for the this, sake of this conference, is that St. Thomas's practice in the Contra Gentiles can tell us much of what he thought about what we call the development of doctrine. This double aim of manifesting truth and reproving error follows from the office of the wise man which Thomas here takes up, for it belongs to one and the same science to pursue one of two contraries and to oppose the other. It is not for apologetic purposes, therefore, that St. Thomas concerns himself so much with heretical opinion in Book Four, but precisely in order to manifest the truth. R.A. Gautier explains, in order to be in full possession of the truth, it's not enough to have accomplished the first task of the wise man, which is to speak the truth. It is also necessary to acquit oneself of the second, which is to show the cause of the opposed error. The task of the wise man is complete only when he shows that the same reason on which his adversary bases his error is in reality accord with the truth that has been demonstrated. So the aim of the Liber de Veritate Catholice Fidei requires a careful and explicit examination of errors bearing on the Trinitarian and Christological, sacramental, theological, and eschatological doctrine of the Catholic faith. Now the history of Trinitarian and Christological error is in fact one history, and though preserving the formal distinction between the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation, according to the overall scheme of Congentilis, St. Thomas more rather than less follows the very course of heretical opinion from the fourth to the seventh century in the first half of the fourth book of the Contra Gentiles. As to the Trinity, we move from the adoptionism of Corinthus and Ebion, first century, which was renewed by Paul of Samosata, third century, and strengthened, St. Thomas says, by Photinus, fourth century, we move to Sabellus, stepping back to the third century, but then on to Arius and Eunomius, later fourth century. Then comes the question, or early fourth century still, then comes the question of the Holy Spirit and the subsequent era of Macedonianism, that's later fourth century, and so ends the list of Trinitarian errors, save for the question of the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Son. Then turning to the Incarnation, immediately after his treatment of the Trinity, the error of Ebion and Corinthus, Paul of Samosata and Photinus, who all deny the divinity of Christ, is reprised for us, since it bears on the mystery of the Incarnation as well as on that of the Trinity. Then Thomas turns to the humanity of Christ, as did the history of heretical error, 
touching first on the body of Christ and the mistaken opinions concerning of the Manichees, third century, step back, Valentinus, second century, Apollinaris, fourth century, and then on to the soul of Christ and the opinions thereon of Arius and again Apollinaris. And folding in origin here from the second century. After the elements of the union have been treated, the union itself is examined, again following the history of the thing. Theodore of Mopsuestia, Nestorius, early 5th century, and then Eutyches, mid-5th century. And then we come to Macarius of Antioch on the human will of Christ two centuries later, which position reduces, St. Thomas argues, to the monophysitism of Eutyches. St. Thomas extends his treatment of the union of divinity and humanity of Christ into the Middle Ages, and the three opinions of Peter Lombard recount, the, then the three opinions Peter Lombard recounts in his sentences, two of which are Nestorian, the Habitus theory of Peter Abelard, and finally, the double supposita account of the Archbishop of Sons. St. Thomas is not a Denziger theologian. I mean that he does not manifest the truth of the Catholic faith exclusively, or even first of all, by calling on the authority of the church, of pope or council, as the case may be. He calls on them as suits his argument and who he is arguing with. What he calls on in the first place and constantly is scripture. He betrays here the easy confidence of Catholic faith that sacred scripture and the church speak with one voice, the confidence that God himself in his own voice and through the inspired word manifests the truths he wishes all to embrace. Gilles Emery notes the standard way in, Saint, in which St. Thomas manifests Catholic truth by engaging heretical Trinitarian opinion in the first part of book four. There are six steps. First, he summarizes the position. Second, he states the premises from which it proceeds. Third, he lists the scriptural authorities whence it allegedly follows. Fourth, he names the persons who hold the position. Fifth, he establishes the contrary truth of the Catholic faith from scripture. Last, he answers the scriptural arguments put forward by the heretics. The pattern is not maintained uh, in this uh, complex form for Christology. Generally, in the Christology section, we have first the name or names of those upholding heretical opinion, second, a statement of the position, and third, the scriptural warrants for the statement of Catholic truth. Most of the time, St. Thomas gives us the scriptural warrants adduced for heterodox opinion and, and his refutation of them in the same chapter that he reports them. The numbers here, sometimes it's useful just to count, the numbers here attest to the overwhelmingly scriptural nature of the argument. The treatment of Arianism, for instance, employs 106 texts by my count. Emery reports the analysis of J.A. Fidalgo Herance. He, uh, Fidalgo Herance, counts 127 citations from the Old Testament and 335 from the New in chapters 1 to 26, the Trinity section of book four. This is roughly a third of the 1,498 biblical references that Fidalgo Herance finds in the entire Contra Gentiles. In the Christology section, chapters 27 to 55, my very rough and ready count and counting repeated uses of the same text gives 177 citations, which I think is deceptive 
Yeah, because, uh, uh, for instance, chapter 46 on whether Christ was born of the Holy Spirit gives no citations of Scripture in that chapter, but refers us back to chapters 19 and 21 in the treatment of the Trinity, where there are many citations of Scripture. But on this showing, the development of doctrine is the reading of sacred Scripture. We feel, uh, every modern reader of the, of the text, we, we feel Nicaea and the First Council of Constantinople in the background of chapter 7, Arius, and chapters 17 and 18, Macedonianism. But they're not mentioned expressly. I think that's significant. They're not mentioned expressly. We feel them, but St. Thomas doesn't say. In chapter 7, there are many arguments that conclude the Son is not a creature. He's said to be derived from the substance of God. And he's said to be true God and equal to the Father. And St. Thomas asserts that uh, there is numerical identity of nature and essence in the Father and the Son. But we don't read any Greek here in this chapter. And St. Thomas is content with saying that the Son is eus de nature compatri. What is expressed, what's up front, what's in our face is the teaching of scripture, hardly changed by the introduction of the formalities of such language as essence and nature equal the same. If we read these two tracts closely, Trinity Christology, however, we will discover a sort of implicit claim St. Thomas makes about the logic of dogmatic development disclosed in the history of heresy and the history of the church's reading of scripture. The claim is made first in the arrangement of the heresies touching on the divinity, distinction, and generation of the Son. Chapters four and five give us Photinus and Sibelius and an immediate refutation of each. But the solution of their arguments is not given until after chapter nine, after the three chapters on Arianism. Why this arrangement? Hmm. The introductory lines of chapter six present Arianism as a sort of logical next step after Photinus and Sibelius. If the Son of God did not take his origin from Mary, as Photinus once, and if the Father does become the Son by being born of Mary, uh, perhaps it does not become the Son by being born of Mary, perhaps there is a generation of the Son prior to the incarnation, and so we have Arianism. But all three of these positions then are compared in chapter seven. Plotinus and Sibelius admit only a human generation of Christ. Arius admits to his generation in another nature. Only the Catholic faith confirms a truly divine and eternal generation. Sibelius confesses the divinity of Christ while Plotinus and Arius do not. But Arius and Plotinus hold to the distinction of Christ from the Father. Therefore, Thomas concludes, the Catholic faith keeps to the middle road. It holds with Arius and Photinus against Sibelius that the person of the Father is other than the person of the Son, and the Son is begotten, but the Father entirely unbegotten. But with Sibelius against Photinus and Arius, it holds that Christ is true and natural God, the same in nature as the Father, although not the same in person. And from this, an indication of the Catholic truth can be garnered. For, as the philosopher says, even falsehoods give witness against each other, for they stand apart not only from the truth, but from one another. In chapter 9, furthermore, the point is made that the considerations that refute Arius illumine the erroneous opinions of Photinus and Sibelius. 
for the distinction of Christ taken as man and Christ taken as divine, a distinction made in confronting Arius, provides the key to answer the arguments of Photinus, who denies the divinity of Christ because of the weakness and infirmity of his humanity. And the Catholic response to Arius in asserting an identity of nature in two persons, not two gods, gives answer to Sibelius. Now, I think we should, I think we should uh, be awake here and notice this structuring of the material tells us that 300 years of heretical history from the second to the fourth centuries make a kind of a logical whole, a logical unit. We don't understand Photinus and Sibelius fully until we get to Arius. And in this way, the manifestation of the one Catholic truth takes time, as much time as is needed for the interrelated heresies to work themselves out. In this way, we might well say the history of heresy is, in a way, more manifest as a history, a more evident succession of changes than the history of doctrine, where an abiding identity subsists unchanged from the first century. The same thing is true also for the manifestation of the truth of the incarnation. The question of the union of divinity and humanity in Christ logically follows the consolidation of the truth of his human body and human soul and divinity. Even so, Nestorius substantially returns us to the Christology of Photinus, St. Thomas says, and the solution of Eutyches to the question of union returns us either to the docetism of Mani or to Apollinarism. Chapter 41, furthermore, opposes the natural union of Arius, Apollinaris, and Eutyches to the accidental union of Nestorius and his medieval followers. Once again, we're looking at a patristic trajectory of at least 200 years. Scripture unfolds its riches only across time. St. Thomas is not suggesting anything original when he points out the mutual connections and illuminations of the heresies when they are considered together. This, too, is very important. He's reporting a received understanding relative to the positions of Photinus, Sibelius, and Arius. St. Hilary of Poitiers remarks that one conquers another, and in this way, each demonstrates that the church conquers all. In their several assertions and denials, he says, there are points in which each heresy is in the right in defense or attack. And the result is that the truth of our confession is brought into clearer light. So St. Hilary and St. Thomas, following his example, have the same idea of how to, how to manifest Catholic truth, the same idea that the wise man's office includes the refutation of error. The very title of a fifth century work by Vigilius of Thapsus, Dialogue Against the Arians, Sabellians, and Fortinians, suggests the same point and illustrates it as expressly as does St. Hilary. Now, in fact, it's also important to note in reading the Contra Gentilis that the patristic background to the Trinitarian theology and Christology of the Contragentiles is much finer grained than appears on the surface of the text, where we get some references to the De Heresibus of Augustine, uh, but not much. Uh, we, we, we don't get a lot of footnotes in the Contragentiles. 
But if the development of doctrine is the reading of sacred scripture across time, we can say more fully that development is the progressive reception of scripture by the fathers in meeting the challenge of heresy. And here uh, I draw our attention to the fact that Gilles Emery shows this in some detail and says that St. Thomas's anti-heretical biblical dossier for the doctrine of the Trinity appears fundamentally as a development of patristic exegesis. Speaking of St. Thomas's teaching on the Trinity in the Contragentiles, although we would not be mistaken to think of his teaching on the Incarnation too, also, uh, Emery offers an important summary of St. Thomas's project. It seems to us, Emery writes, that we can say that Thomas proposes here to recast in a personal way by a scriptural and doctrinal review the course of the fathers and the councils. If, therefore, the heresies are avoided, it is because scripture, understood by the fathers, teaches something else than them. As I say, St. Thomas in the Contragentiles is knowing how to read scripture because he's learned from the fathers. And some, as I said, that's not obvious at all when we come to the text, but uh, the studies of uh, Emory uh, have shown this uh, uh, very, for me very joyfully. Uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to learn, it seems to me, which I learned in preparing this paper. St. Thomas confines himself to dealing with the arguments of the heretics on their own scriptural terms. As has been mentioned, we feel the dogmatic decisions of Nicaea and Constantinople I in the backgrounds of chapter seven on the possession of the Son and 17 and 18 on the Holy Spirit. So also everyone must think of Ephesus in reading chapter 34 on the error of Nestorius. But the councils are not mentioned explicitly in these chapters. Since St. Thomas is speaking to Catholics in the Contragentiles and not to living heretics, this is not because the earliest heretics would not recognize the authority of the universal church, which they would not, even as they would not recognize the authority of the exegesis of the Orthodox Fathers, who also go unmentioned. Rather, it's important for prosecuting his own aim that he refute heretical opinion on scriptural grounds precisely in order to show that the Catholic faith just is the teaching of sacred scripture. So uh, I, I, think as, I, I think especially these, these more uh, contemporary studies uh, uh, by uh, Gilles Emery uh, make this very manifest to us. So in dealing with Trinitarian Christological heresies in the country of Gentiles, it's not to St. Thomas's purpose to appeal to conciliar or patristic authority, although both are in the background and inform his own understanding of things. What St. Thomas does appeal, when St. Thomas does appeal especially to the fathers by name uh, in the Contragentiles and to the councils by name, it's where his ideal interlocutors would recognize their authority in the question on the possession of the spirit from the son and in the Christological section against Eutyches and against medieval Christological opinion. In fact, and as is well known, St. Thomas demonstrated a knowledge of conciliar teaching unusual for his day. This has been well researched by Martin Morad. There is in the first place St. Thomas's knowledge of the conciliar acts of Ephesus and Chalcedon, available to him in the Collectio Casinensis, so-called from a copy in the archives of Montecassino. What is it a copy of? 
Well, it's a translation of the Acts of the Councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon made in the sixth century by Rusticus, a deacon of the Roman Church, a nephew of Pope Vigilius. Where and in what manuscript uh, Thomas would have read this collection of texts remains uncertain. St. Thomas's use of it, however, becomes prominent with the Glossa Continua in Matteo and with Book 4 of the Conti Gentiles and the disputed questions on the power of God, and thence forward into the Great Summa. There's also his knowledge of the Acts of Constantinople II and his Christology and Exegesis, also groundbreaking for his time, and this too, researched by Morar. The citation from the Collectio in chapter 25, here on the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Son, the text from Chalcedon has special relevance to our topic. St. Thomas is answering the charge that the papal teaching of the Filioque violates conciliar prohibition to add anything to the creed. St. Thomas answers as follows. The declaration of the Synod of Chalcedon says that the fathers gathered at Constantinople corroborated the doctrine of the Synod of Nicaea. This they did not as though to imply that the doctrine of Nicaea was something less, but to declare by scriptural testimonies the understanding of the Holy Spirit of their predecessors against those who attempted to reject that understanding. Closed quotation that St. Thomas is making. Earlier, our doctrine is corroborated, not by any addition to it, which would be an addition to Catholic faith, which is impossible since it is one and whole from the time of the apostles, but by spelling out what is implicit in it. Just after the above quotation, Thomas maintains that the procession of the Holy Spirit is implicitly contained in the creed of Constantinople, for what is understood of the Father must be understood of the Son, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. This amounts what this amounts to is finding conciliar warrant for the development of doctrine, a notable insight. Let's, let's skip, for the sake of time, let's skip that next italicized paragraph. At least it's italicized in my version. There are two questions that arise for us apropos of St. Thomas's appeal to conciliar teaching. First, we should ask more explicitly what sort of knowledge Thomas thinks the councils gave him with what sort of authority? And second, what did his usually unusually detailed knowledge of conciliar teaching as measured against the ordinary custom of his time teach him about the manifestation of Catholic truth? First, since it is the authority of the universal church, the authority of council and pope is superior to that of the fathers, but inferior to that of scripture for St. Thomas. As to the last, Someone might think that the definition of the aforesaid council, he means Nicaea, is to be preferred to the authority of the letter of the Old or New Testaments, which is, all, which is altogether false. It's not to be preferred. It must be understood that through conciliar teaching, a true understanding is received from sacred scripture. Only Catholics have this understanding, although the letter of sacred scripture is common to Catholics and heretics and Jews. What is this to say, Morar asks, if not that the councils are conceived of as places of the ecclesial reception of scriptural revelation and therefore of the emergence of dogma. 
They are, quote, providential occasions where, under the pressure of errors that must be eradicated, the teaching authority of the church declares the teaching of scripture. Councils give us the truth of the scriptures to which they are strictly subservient. As to the second question, Thomas's more intimate knowledge of the course of conciliar teaching, never dropping anything but corroborating by the authority of scripture what went before and drawing out implications of what had previously been said. This contains, according to Mordor, the seed of a consciousness, if not of development of doctrine, dogma, at least of the historicity of its explication. The conciliar argument for development noted above, we might say, is pregnant with the recognition that historicity and authority are not opposed, but conspire to maintain the church in the truth of the gospel. In the longer version, I, I, I also try to show, uh, uh, following uh, Father Emmer, what uh, the as it were, properly systematic chapters in Book 4 show us for the manifestation of uh, uh, Catholic faith. Uh, that's chapters 11 on the procession of the word, 19 on the procession of the Holy Spirit, and 41 on how to understand uh, the hypostatic union. Uh, but uh, I think I'll let that slide also and proceed to the concluding remarks, which I'll try to read slowly so that we can digest this, because the concluding remarks go on maybe a little bit longer than they should. First remark. For St. Thomas, conciliar definitions amount to strategic summaries of a long contemplation of revealed mysteries communicate, communicated to believers in the scriptures. The universal church speaks in general councils, and therefore their authority is unmatched as a declaration of the truth of the scriptures, of the nature of the mysteries. If formulating the definition is developing a doctrine, then the development of doctrine on St. Thomas's showing in the fourth book of the Contragentiles is in the first place an ecclesial work, an ecclesial utterance. The active subject of development is therefore, in some sense, the church herself as a whole. If it takes 200 or 300 years for a unit of development to be realized, say from Ebion to Sibelius to Arius, say, the abiding subject of memory, of developing the expressions of faith responsive to heresy transcends any individual Christian, any individual father. Second. For St. Thomas, the conciliar interpretation of scripture and so the contemplation of the mysteries once the definition arises is carried out on behalf of the church, especially by the fathers of the church. His own, St. Thomas' own marshalling of scripture and the contradictiles is a marshalling of scripture as understood by the fathers. See Emery for the details. Even if he omits the citations he gives in his more regularly composed and constructed university works. Skip the next period. Number three, the patristic reading of scripture and so the emergence of doctrinal definitions takes place only over the course of many years, as I've mentioned, even centuries, as I've just noted, as provoked by and in contrast to heretical readings opposed to themselves and not only to scripture in St. Thomas's understanding of it. 
The very arrangement of the chapters of the Contradentilas devoted to the generation of the sun reveals this, as I've noted for us. That it takes many years to come to a more perfect understanding of Catholic truth in contrast with heretical error is a recognition by St. Thomas of what we today call the historicity of truth, which should be no cause for surprise once we attend to the extreme seriousness with which he takes the discursive nature of the rational mind, which St. Thomas, as many of us are aware of in this room, labors to point out again and again in his treatment of man in his philosophical, theological anthropology. The distinction between truth and error becomes manifest only in many distinctions between truth and opposing errors, errors that are opposed to themselves as well as to the truth. Making distinctions however, is a labor immersed in time. There's an elaborate, elegant phenomenological argument for that, uh, and I refer to that in the notes. Of course, it is by faith that we know the fourth and fifth century and subsequent expressions of her faith by the church are expressions of apostolic faith. However, the history of the church's response to heresy, such as Thomas gives us in the first half of the last book of the Contradentilas, really does serve to display this identity, although it does not display it certainly, of course, except to the satisfaction of an historical reason that is itself an instrument of faith, a servant. So, all of, all of St. Thomas's marshalling of history, where, uh, he, where he takes occasion to do that, that's all strictly governed by the methodological principles that he works out in the first question of the great Summa and uh, the uh, theology as the architectonic science, which uses uh, metaphysics, and we should say as well in his practice, it's obvious, history also as uh, servants. Number four. Just because development of doctrine is a matter chiefly of the reading of scripture, St. Thomas can be very relaxed about the terms of the conciliar definitions themselves. I think this is kind of remarkable. As I say, he's not a Denziger theologian. He's not, he doesn't clutch you know, at, the, at, the, at the very words when he's uh, presenting the exegesis of scripture and refutation of the heretics. He does not belabor those terms, but lets the first building blocks, the basic distinctions by which we constitute the world, emerge naturally, naturally itself a basic word, word from the reading itself. So words like essence and nature are introduced in chapter seven on the generation of the sun. The point to such an exposition of Catholic faith is to emphasize that we want to hear the scriptures. We want to hear the word of God. We do not want to hear the word of the church we, we, do not, we do not want the word of the church, the word she formulates, to usurp the place of God's word or obscure its primacy. And so it seems to me the way he proceeds in the country Gentiles is perfectly, I, I'm just trying to give the rule by which he's proceeding there. It's not, you know, listen first to the church. We listen to scripture guided by the understanding of the church. But the point is, is to listen to scripture. Fifth. Within St. Thomas's reading of the development of doctrine relative to the Trinity and the Incarnation, within the historicity of truth, his acknowledgment of the slow reading of scripture presents to us, there is also a systematic logical pattern he discerns. Historicity, dependent as it is on matter, 
does not mean an unintelligible course of things. Historicity is not chaos. And it turns out that there is a sort of order embedded in the historical course of heresy, and so of the manifestation of doctrine. Thus, in treating the incarnation in the contra St. Thomas deals first with the natures to be united in the hypostatic union, because that reflects the course of historical error. An error about the, first about the divinity of Christ, then an error about the humanity of Christ, as to his body, then as to his soul. And then follows the question of union. But this is an ordered sequence, one congruent with the very nature of the mystery, which serves at the same time as a framework for the orderly exposition of Sacra Doctrina. St. Thomas reproduces the elements of this order in another sequence in the Summa Theologiae, but he sees it also in the very history of heresy and Catholic truth from the second to the fifth century. I think that's a, 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 a remarkable thing. Sixth, and I didn't talk about numbers. Uh, no, six, I did say something about this. The history of error, of course, does not stop with the age of the fathers in the first five councils. It continues into Thomas's own age and services in medieval opinions about the, uni about the union of divinity and humanity in Christ. Here, the remedy once, uh, once given for an historian is a proof still powerful. But Thomas, because of his knowledge of history, is the first to see this. Last, this is what I didn't say anything about, but would, would give a more complete uh, assessment of what St. Thomas is accomplishing in the Contragentilis. The telos of knowing the development of doctrine is found in understanding, understanding the mysteries, the historically informed presentation of heresy and orthodoxy is crowned, chapters 10, 19, 41, by a metaphysically informed contemplation of the mystery, a contemplation that satisfies the desire of the believer not only to know what is so, but to know also how it can be so. So to speak, the historically informed presentation wants to be so crowned, at least in St. Thomas's exposition of that history of the manifestation of Trinitarian and Christological doctrine. Amen. Say, I would say that he does. Uh, I, I would say that he he's that he's well aware of of what uh, say Father Congar will name as an external motor or engine of development heresy. He's and he's well aware of a kind of an internal motor of development, which is uh, the contemplation of the mystery as revealed in Scripture. So at least in 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 those ways, he he. He's, he's very aware of, of certain things that when, then, then we, when we come to the uh, 20th century and people start you know, stick, analyzing and start sticking names on things, uh, that those are, those, his awareness of those things as behind the, the production of 
of a doctrine proclaimed at Nicaea or uh, uh, Constantinople I or Ephesus, it's, it seems to me those things are very much in his consciousness and, and reflexive as kind of, you know, that he has a possession of those things, even if he doesn't bother to stick na names on them and, and to talk about a theory of development. I would say that, I would say that he does. Thank you, Father. At the beginning of the talk, you mentioned sort of in passing the role of the apostles in the sort of the oneness of the deposit revelation. Even in St. Thomas' stuff, but just in general, what is, what do you think we talk about revelation ends with the death of the last apostle? What does that mean? Do we think the apostles, even in terms of the development of doctrine, that anything that the church says now, the apostles would recognize is true? Do they have some sort of pre-thematic knowledge of uh, the fullness of relation? I don't know your thoughts on that, sort of the relationship of the deposit of faith being given once and for all to the apostles, and then how that's related to this question of Well, uh, maybe you're aware that uh, uh, expert opinion has been uh, has been divided on that issue in the in the great days of the kind of hammering out theories of development in the 20th century. So we have people like uh, Cardinal Jourdain, and I think Manasola also, who have a very high view of what the apostles as it were, were in uh, reflexive possession of as, uh, as objects and uh, uh, faith and the elucidation of faith. And then, we, and, but then we also have, uh, as it were, uh, very skeptical rejoinders to the position of uh, Journet and Maransola by uh, people such as Henri de Lubin. I, I don't see my, myself, I would be happy to be corrected about this by somebody who knows better. I myself don't see the necessity for postulating the apostolic mind or the kind of the, the detailed inventory of con contents and the apostolic mind that uh, uh, Cardinal Journet and uh, Manasola would defend. I don't I don't see that we need that in order to defend a robust view of closure uh, with the death of the last uh, apostle. Uh, so, uh, I, I, some of that depends also on uh, having a confident view of the alternate way of accessing and and uh, judging and appreciating revealed mystery, the uh, so-called voie uh, affective, or uh, knowledge by connaturality, uh, of which St. Thomas is also aware. I don't know that he ever calls on this in a, in a matter for uh, discerning the development of doctrine. But uh, the 20, 20th century people certainly called on this in their own understandings of how development works, that there's a, a connatural, experiential tasting you know, of, of the mystery, which is, which is given to us according as we conform ourselves 
to what is revealed to us about the mystery in the propositions of the creed and in the doctrine of the church. With, it, it, seem, it seems to me, according as we're confident of that way of possessing revealed mystery, we don't, we don't, we don't need a detailed inventory of uh, contents the way, seemingly, as far as I understand it, Cardinal Journey is proposing there. But I, as I say, I would be. I, I, that's my uh, that's my opinion. That's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't burn at the stake for that opinion. <laughs> The question of whether uh, St. John's Aquinas acknowledges the historicity of truth uh, may be ambiguous uh, because, uh, to, uh, as you understand it, I think, is uh, uh, to ask whether uh, St. John's acknowledges that uh, knowledge of the truth has a history. Uh, but you mentioned uh, uh, um, Hegel and Bergson, yes. so Tom and Chief. Uh, uh, and the other question is uh, whether uh, uh, history is the truth. So there uh, are uh, two different questions whether knowledge uh, uh, truth has a history, even knowledge of revealing truth as a history, or whether uh, history is the, the truth. And uh, I think many people who uh, call for historical truth have this second meaning in mind. I, th I think you're right, I think they do. But I, I, I don't. I don't think we should concede to them that that's the, that that's the only useful way to talk about the historicity of truth. Uh, uh, of course, you know, we know the great divide between God constituting the truth about himself by othering himself in the world and the uh, story of truth such as is vouchsafed in an economy of salvation and revelation. We, 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 know there's a, we know there's a large distinction to make there. But I think that, I think there's, I think, a, I think depending on our, I think depending on our uh, kind of phenomenology of consciousness and uh, time and how we possess things, I, I think there are very many astonishing things for us to come to realize about how our possession of truth and reality is is astonishingly given to us in ways that we did not know we possessed until later we come to a kind of express possession of it. I think here, maybe, I don't know whether this would be too far off the beaten path here, but think of what uh, Hansers von Balthasar says is communicated to the baby by the baby's mother's smile. Every, the goodness of being, the beauty of, of being, 
the, uh, the moral and intelligible constitution of, of the child's reality, all of that is communicated to the, to the baby in, by the mother's smile, and yet it takes a whole life for a, 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 a happy, and I mean happy according to being fortunate, it takes a whole life for a fortunate child to be able to spell that out and to, and to know what his mother gave him in the very first moments. But the mother knows already because the baby smiles back. Bang. Well, I, that time doesn't have anything to do with what you're asking about. <laughs> Thank you very much. One question I'm using, you know, with good reason of, of the importance of scripture and of course St. Thomas, but I just wondered, um, um, could you tell could you say something about how he interprets uh, scripture itself and, and whether whether we're you know use you also use the phrase of uh, the apostolic mind, you know, Well to, it, it, just let me finish, okay. Okay. So the question is Basically, that, um, I mean, wouldn't the, the criterion, the major criterion, then be not, you know, uh, the mind of the apostles, what was in the apostles' mind, or in, in, you know, written by any particular you know, writer of a work in the New Testament, but, but the criterion would be the mind of Christ. And so that's, that's really the, the, you know, the object of development of doctrine as, as, as opposed to the subject. Use that uh, distinction. And anyhow, would you agree with that? Would you, Thomas? I, I, I think so. I think so. Can you tell me, thanks, Father, 